Welcome to the Longevity Biotech Show. We have an exciting show for you today with uh, Anil Bhushan of Deciduous Therapeutics. Um, but before we get started, um, let's just uh, let me introduce myself very quickly. Um, so my name is Nathan Cheng. I'm the founder of the Longevity Market Cap newsletter. Um, that's basically a once a week roundup of different developments in the longevity biotech industry. Um, I'm also the founder of uh, Longevity List, which is a place where people can find jobs, companies, uh, and uh, investors in the longevity biotech industry. Um, I'm also uh, the founder of, a co-founder of Healthspan Capital, which is a fund that invests in early stage longevity biotech startups. And uh, last but not least, uh, I'm the program director of the newly announced Longevity Biotech Fellowship at OnDeck. Um, we just announced it on Tuesday, uh, and it was really great. Um, the fellowship is basically where founders, investors, uh, experts, and operators come together to build revolutionary longevity biotech startups. And um, I'm really proud to say that we've assembled uh, an amazing group of leaders in longevity uh, to be founding fellows of the and uh, mentors in the program, uh, including uh, Robin Mansukani, who is uh, Anil's co-founder at Deciduous Therapeutics. So uh, super excited about that. But uh, let me introduce our guest for today. We have um, the, the privilege of having Anil Bhushan on the show. Uh, Anil is a professor uh, at the University of California, San Francisco. And uh, he's also a co-founder of Deciduous Therapeutics, which is a company, a biotech company that is developing immunotherapies to remove uh, senescent cells. So really in interested to dig into that a little later, but um, I just want to thank you first, uh, Neil, for coming on the show today. Uh, it, it's an honor to have you here. No, thank you for the invitation, Nathan. I've been following you now for the last month or so, so um, you be, you're doing exciting stuff. <laughs> thank you. Especially thank you. that on deck yeah, thing that you announced this week. Yeah, that was uh, a crazy sprint to, to get that off the ground, but uh, yeah, very excited. So um, let's just uh, get started here. Um, we'll, we'll start with uh, a couple sort of uh, questions about uh, the science behind deciduous therapeutics and, and then maybe get into uh, the backstory of the company. And then after we get through there, um, maybe halfway through, so like after 30 minutes, we'll open up the floor to Q&A. And um, so anybody in the audience, if you want to come up to ask a question, uh, this is being recorded. So uh, if you come up, that means you consent to us using your voice in the recording. So uh, great, let's begin. Um, so Anil, um, maybe you can first start by telling us what is deciduous therapeutics and uh, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Well, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, the, the backstory is a little interesting. So I, we, my lab was primarily focused on metabolic diseases and primarily type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, but in, in trying to understand the, the evolution of the disease uh, type 1 diabetes and, and following the course of the disease, from a perspective of a pancreatic beta cell, um, we noticed something unusual, which was that the pancreatic beta cells were turning on this senescent fate. And and we went into patients, you know, to look at, at because this is primarily a pediatric disease and it was unusual. 
uh, and we found, you know, six-year-old patients with senescent beta cells. So, you know, the first thing was to dissociate senescence necessarily from classical aging, but also the fact that it it's, uh, it uh, acutely occurs in a disease state. And uh, once we identified that, then we used mass models to eliminate senescent cells to see if that had any effect on the course of the disease. And it essentially prevented the disease uh, from... So type 1 diabetes mice that are typically known as the nod mice, uh, if you give them the drug. Uh, this, what we used was a ABT199, which is also known as venetoclax. Uh, which is an ABV drug. Um, it, it it targets specifically BCL2, not not the other BCL family members. So we didn't have any side effects, and 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 that essentially prevented type one diabetes. So that led us to the idea that senescent cells accumulate in a disease within the local tissue, and removing them is beneficial for the disease. And from there, the idea really. Um, I, I met Laura Demings, um, and I, you know, mentioned this uh, to her, and she said, oh, you know, I've seen about 30 senolytic companies, you know, that's not very interesting at this point. Um, I said, yeah, but, you know, the question that nobody understands is how is the immune surveillance regulating the removal of senescent cells to maintain homeostasis? And... Um, if we could target the immune system to do it, then she said that would be amazing. And so, um, so we went around and and uh, you know we identified the immune surveillance uh, mechanism, which we can go into more later. Um, and uh, and and that's essentially how we started deciduous. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the backstory. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. One. Th Thing that you said that we should really highlight is that you know senescent cells uh although in the aging community we usually associate that with, with like aging right uh, and um uh, but actually you know senescent cells can appear in in other indications and uh, they really are just you know fundamentally they're damaged cells right that they right. just uh cannot cannot uh, replicate right and uh, they can show up when in like uh, you know wound healing and uh, other sort of uh, events where there's sort of like a, an injury or, or whatever even through like chemotherapeutics or whatever so yeah very cool that you mentioned that um, and I think that's really interesting how you came to the aging space through uh, a different sort of uh, line of inquiry through uh, diabetes right and um, that's that's always very cool to see how um, you know, there's a couple other companies out there that, you know, they started in one sort of very specific domain and then found that, oh, yeah, actually, this might have like an application to aging. So exactly. very, very interesting for that. Mm -hmm. OK, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about this whole uh, immune surveillance thing, because, um, you know, I'm not really an expert in immunology at all. And uh, what I hear from a lot of people is that, like, OK, Immunology is uh, where intuition goes to die or something like that. That's like a, something that people say. <laughs> and um, so I, I'm interested in like, uh, how does this immune surveillance work? Right? Uh, what, what are you guys doing? Yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the key point that we took away from our work in type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, was, um, was, it was sort of a paradigm shift for the field in a way was that, Generally, autoimmune diseases are considered a 
a um, uh, overzealous immune system removing endogenous, you know, functioning cells, and in this case, pancreatic beta cells. And and our takeaway from this was that no, actually, if we remove the senescent cells via a senolytic, um, that actually halted and prevented the disease. So what we took away from that was that actually there was a failure of the immune surveillance to remove senescent cells. Um, that was part of the problem, rather than an overzealous immune system, which is also true. But but there's a temporal sequence to all of this. So. Uh, so, which you know, which in in the in the field of type one diabetes, we received with certain consternation as to why are we activating an immune system, or at least uh, ascribing to activate a certain part of the immune system in an autoimmune disease. Um, so, so the t- takeaway there was was okay. So clearly, there's some part of the immune surveillance that was failing to remove senescent cells. So then, let's identify this immune surveillance mechanism. And and the way we went about it is we we stepped, you know, took a step back and, and went back to look at the. Uh, we did a great in-depth single cell RNA seq analysis, where we could. I, you know, look at senescent cells, especially the senescent cells with a secretory profile. So there are senescent cells, which we should, you know, uh, to step back to define what senescent cells are. I mean, so cells that exit the cell cycle is is the first response of a damaged cell. And then um, they turn on a secretory profile, which releases, you know, more than 60 factors uh, which l- locally remodel the microenvironment around the senescent cells, but they also recruit the immune system to not only come to repair the damage, but also to remove the senescent cells themselves. So, so we were targeting these senescent cells, the ones with the secretory profile. We could look at this detailed single cell RNA seq, and the first things we noticed was that there was an, um, a great um, increase in the uh, changes in the antigen processing machinery in these cells compared to other equivalent cells that have not become senescent. And uh, and from there, the the key link there was really that it was the MHC class 1 molecules that were being altered, which is how they communicate to the immune system. So we did a screen. uh, in in senescent cells in vitro, uh, for all the MHC class one molecules to identify which ones were being altered, and and that's what led us to this particular MHC class one like molecule called CD1D. Now CD1D is particularly interesting and and led us to the whole identity of the immune surveillance because it only interacts with one immune cell type, which is the invariant natural killer T cell. And and this interaction is very specific, and it's mediated, unlike other MHC class one T cell uh, interactions, it's mediated by a lipid, a glycolipid, so a lipid antigen as opposed to a peptide antigen. So um, once we identified, you know, that the invariant natural killer T cells are, we could then look in, say, a disease state like. Uh, where senescent cells accumulate in the microenvironment and show that the INK T cells are not only reduced in numbers, but they're also um, not very functional. But the key was that we could stimulate these cells and make them functional. 
And so when we deliver, for example, a lipid antigen in mice, um, we could remove senescent cells very efficiently. We could first we could act activate the uh, uh, INKT cells, so they release cytokines and uh, increase in number, and then they subsequently could clear the senescent cells. So that's how we look, you know, and identified this immune surveillance mechanism and, and showed that it works in both in vitro and in vivo. Um, I could go on and on, but you know. Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's really great. And um, it's really interesting, of course. Um, so maybe we can dig a little deeper into what sort of um, results you guys got. So uh, you recently um, published a paper in uh, MED, which is like a, a cell press um, publication. And uh, there were some really interesting results in, in terms of like what you were able to uh, show in like in vivo models for uh, certain certain yeah. mouse disease models. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So so since this is a chatty forum, I should you know, also mention because a lot of people ask me why did you publish in Med, and and I just wanted to tell you. I mean, it's part of it is personality. Uh, I like um, to go to, for example, restaurants that are before they become chic and earn Michelin stars to identify them and find them. Um, so in in a way, I think Med is going to be an amazing journal. I wanted to be there early, so that well, that's why we went to Med. Um, it has a great editorial board, um, team, and uh, it's going to make uh, it's going to be a great journal. Um, so um, the question was was uh, so we, we we had to figure out some basic models as to demonstrate this. Um, ability to clear senescent cells and we picked two very classical models where they had been shown to remove senescent cells by senolytics. Uh, um, Kirkland, um, James Kirkland in, in, at Mayo Clinic um, and his associates uh, Nathan did one work in, in, um, in IPF um, and so we, we, we we looked at models where we knew there was accumulation of senescent cells. The, the simplest one was a mouse model with, that was on a high-fat diet, and, and senescent cells accumulate in the adipose compartment, and primarily it's the progenitor cells, the, uh, what, what are called the pre-adipocytes, that become senescent. Um, and um, so we, we could treat these mice with a single dose of the lipid antigen, stimulate INKT cells, and remove uh, the pre-adipocytes from the adipose tissue. And, and this had a consequence, a, a benefit in the disease, because mice on a high-fat diet um, are glucose intolerant, so they don't metabolize glucose very well, and they become what we call insulin resistant. And the single treatment uh, and removal of senescent cells resulted in normalization of blood metabolism, uh, glucose metabolism, and as well as um, led to a decrease in insulin resistance. So that was the model one we chose. The second model we chose was a bleomycin-induced injury in the lung that led to accumulation of senescent epithelial and mesenchymal cells. Um, and um, again, removal, activation of INKT led to removal of these senescent cells 
and 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 one of the consequences of this injury is is the fibrosis and so with doing this we could reverse the fibrosis um, of the bleomycin induced fibrosis um, as well as it provided a survival benefit because these mice end up dying with the injury and treat, treating them uh, prevented their de death. Does that okay, answer? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting. The IPF, uh, so that's uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Right. Um, so this disease uh, doesn't really have any FDA sort of effective treatments uh, approved for this disease. So, so this is really uh, exciting work, um, and especially because it's like reversing the, the course of the disease. Um, I think there might be, a, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there might be like a treatment that tries to slow the progression of the disease, but, but there's nothing really out there that, that can like reverse. No, and, uh, and, and it's, it's also... So it's also treatment very symptomatic and very difficult to take drugs um, and, and not very effective. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, exactly, yeah. So, and, and it's a, you know, yeah, so, two or three times a day and what we're proposing, and this is the greatness of this senescence clearing and, you know, longevity spaces. Our drug treatments are, you know, what I compared to as going to the spa, it's every couple months. It's not, it's not a, it's not a daily treatment because senescent cells don't accumulate that quickly. That's a good point. And um, the, I think um, what's really interesting is that uh, your company, I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, companies developing, I guess, uh, senescent cell therapies, but I, I think you're basically one of the few or only uh, companies that's developing like a, an immunotherapy, right? And uh, I guess, uh, the benefit here is that it's it's very selective, right? We're basically leveraging, uh, you know, nature and evolution's own sort of machinery in the endogenous immune system to selectively remove certain bad cells, these senescent cells. Right. So, um, but but what do you think are like the main challenges for immunotherapies for senescent cell removal compared to like I guess other modalities? Well, I mean, so. This... Senolytics, uh, which is you know targets um, typically targets the anti-apoptotic machinery in a senescent cell, um, which is a great strategy. The only back you know drawback there is that this anti-apoptotic machinery is present in every cell. It's it's ubiquitous. They typically revolve around p53, MDM2, uh, you know uh, BCL2, and and uh, uh, that 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 pathway and you know playing with p53 three is always playing with fire so uh, there's there was always this drawbacks and the fda never you know in, in in the case of unity never wanted to approve a systemic treatment um to to allow this to to go forward so, so the the field faced that challenge uh the immunotherapy provides benefits in that sense is that, as you mentioned, we piggyback on the endogenous specificity and, and therefore the, uh, you know, just take the history comparison between chemotherapy and immunotherapy in, in cancers. I mean, so the, the side effects of immunotherapy in cancer, not only are they, you know, if they're effective, they're amazingly effective, but the side effects are very minimal compared to, uh, uh, compared to chemotherapy. So, so that's you know we were we would call that you know version 2.0 in in senolytic uh, sen senolysis treatments. Uh, 
they, they are, you know, certain issues. We are activating an immune target. Uh, luckily for us, it appears to be, but we don't know this in, in, uh, in, in humans and, and how this will work out, but it, it appears to be that this immune surveillance has a natural shutoff mechanism. So we don't have to worry too much about constantly overstimulating the system because um, being a surveillance system, the INK T cells um, stimulate, proliferate, and then uh, internalize their TCR and then undergo apoptosis. So, and then the numbers of INK T cells drop to baseline levels within two weeks. So it, it's a transient treatment that has its own shutoff mechanism. But, but we are activating an immune you know, subset of the immune system that's fairly, you know, potent. So, so they are. Uh, but you know, I I think um, the the benefits outweigh the risk at this point. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's very cool that they have their own sort of internal, you know, shut off mechanism, and uh, I think that's really promising. Um, so, before we get onto the entrepreneurship sort of backstory and uh, the Q and A. Maybe um, you can tell us a little bit about what's in store for the future of deciduous therapeutics, maybe in like the near term and uh, what you see maybe even long term. Yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, deciduous has a fairly focused mission, which is to, to we have um, the delivery of lipid antigens um, had issues in using, the, you know, the classical alpha-gal SERS, so we have uh, done a lot of structure-based designs to to make this ability to deliver it. We are putting this into formulations that are, uh, you know, not very dissimilar to what everyone's gotten in their arms in the last few months. That is a vaccine uh, formulation through lipid nanoparticles, and uh, uh, we don't need to be very fancy because we're not delivering any RNA. So we just need to make empty lipid nanoparticles in that sense. Um, and, um, and, and the idea then really is to take this to the clinic um, and see, one, it's obviously its safety, but two, its uh, efficacy. And, and, and uh, the challenges really are to, you know, what are the indications we're going to go for first and what are the bases. And we spent a lot of time trying to decide which are the best indications to start in a you know, the current model right now is to do a phase 1A uh, and 1B in, in sort of a basket trial where we have a few indications with patients that will give us a clue as to the efficacy in a phase 1 trial. Okay, great, great, great. Um, okay, so we've sort of uh, gone into the, the science behind the company and some of the things you guys are doing now and into the future. But um, I'd like to maybe just rewind a little bit and talk about uh, your backstory in, in terms of entrepreneurship and uh, the early days of the company, because I find this is very um, instructive for other people who might be thinking about starting their own, you know, biotech company in the longevity space. So um, maybe the first thing I'd like to ask you is, uh, how did the company like actually start, like in terms of like you meeting your co-founder and having like the science and like actually deciding, hey, maybe this is a company? Well, it, it most of things happen by chance in a way. and. Um... I happened to have a meeting uh, with um, 
the head of QB3 at UCSF, along with other people. Um, his name is Reg Kelly, and um, I actually had never met Reg at that point, and we too, and it's fairly unusual for me, were the ones that were there early for this meeting. So we were chatting as to what, we, what I was doing in my lab, and Reg was very interested in it, and so he came and we started talking, he came to see the data, and he said, you know, you have a company right here. And I said, well, I've never formed a company before, so, you know, and so QB3 at UCSF was very good in, in guiding me towards that. And 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 um, I also, at the same time, for some, you know, the longevity spaces, uh, at least two years ago, was a lot smaller. Um, and for some reason, Laura Demings, contacted me to talk to me and uh, I think she had heard through the grapevine um, and um, and our paper had come out in, in uh, on, on the type 1 diabetes and senescence so um, so I met with Laura at a at a cafe and uh, she said this is all great when I mentioned the whole uh, you know analytics which she was not interested in but she said I mean surveillance is where this would be great, and she said, but I'm not going to fund you until you have a CEO. And so I went back to Reg, and to, um, um, he introduced me to the entrepreneurship program at UCSF, and we went around interviewing people who would be willing to be, you know, fit to be a CEO, and that's how I met Robin. And so then we went back to Laura, and, uh, and then Laura took us into what's called the H1 um, I don't know what it called, Age One program, which was a really great program because it allowed me uh, to. It, it was one-on-one um, -on -one meetings with Laura every week, and you know, Robin and her would go over the pitch deck and this and that. But um, I would be in the background, um, and then um, every once a week we would have dinner with all the other Age One companies as well. And, and some sort of speakers and and uh, you know having a, a glass of wine while we talk about entrepreneurship was a great way to get get in, you know started on this yeah yeah definitely uh, I think that's that's amazing yeah the age one program sounds uh, amazing and uh, yeah just being able to talk with other people who are doing you know, the same sort of things, you know, getting into this longevity space, building biotech companies. I think that's extremely valuable. And um, yeah, so maybe uh, you can share with us uh, your process in terms of um, de-risking the company, right? So a lot of times when I talk to biotech entrepreneurs, the number one uh, piece of advice they give to aspiring uh, entrepreneurs is like de-risk, 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 right? So um, maybe you can tell me about uh, what were what was your sort of like roadmap there and like what, what were the key things that you wanted to to know about your, uh, I guess, your technology before, before like, I guess, going out to raise more money or et cetera. Yeah, so so you know what I have realized talking to a lot of investors uh, lately is that they're interested in de-risking, but they're also interested in points of inflection. So um, you know, I said, but these are all the things you we're doing to de-risk this, and they said that's great, you can de-risk it, but we also you know need a point of inflection. So um, <laughs> so we have to sort of balance all of both of those. Um, where where are a big de-risking strategy is you know so far in our seed stage our our big de-risking milestones were one to have our own series of 
uh, antigens that are deliverable, um, that have a good way to deliver and, and show efficacy in, in um, animal models of, uh, you know, as a proof of concept in animal models, um, which we have done. Uh, so, so that was a big de-risking uh, thing too was you know we, we that these are novel molecules so we could file patents on them and uh, and the company owns the patents so um, that was also important um, three was to to know how to deliver them and and uh, develop strategies that's possible to you know uh, that you could make it you know for example i always talk about the idea of during covid you know remdesivir which is a was a a decent drug and at that time no other drug but the reason it wasn't used was it because it was uh, very cumbersome you had to go to the hospital to get an iv so you wanted to have a delivery system that's easy and, and that people will actually take um and uh, uh four we have built up a great team you know that is functioning in in and well oiled and so so these are all de-risking strategies so that the other big strat you know de-risking event that we have is is the uh safety uh all the safety data that comes out and getting to an ind filing so these are all the de-risking events that the, the next you know big big thing will be really to take it into humans okay yeah exactly and um, so when you um, start talking to investors, right? So um, some, some of your investors include, you know, Laura Demings, uh, Longevity Fund, uh, we have 8VC, CRV. Um, are, are there any sort of tips that you can give in terms of pitching uh, maybe a longevity biotech company to, to investors? Is there something that they, they particularly want to see versus like, a, like the typical... I don't know. Some of the investors, I guess, in this space usually come from like maybe more tech background, and then there's others maybe for more biotech, and then maybe uh, just figuring out how to gauge your investor to, uh, I guess, tailor your pitch to, to the different kinds of investors that are sort of specific to longevity. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not an expert in this, um, <laughs> but I can tell you, I mean, things that I have learned that are simple, you, know, you base it on solid good science great data and uh, and a vision i mean if you have these three things uh, it's hard to f to fail to raise money i i don't you know there's no guarantee of success in actually working but but if you have if you have solid science solid good data um and 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 a good vision as to where you're going to take the company and and how it's going to you know, translate to therapeutics, then you, that's all you need to focus on, in my view. I mean, there must be other things. And, and you know, everyone gives advice on how things are. I'm no expert in it, but I'm, this is my N equals one. So that's my takeaway from it. Okay, great. We'll, we'll, we'll take it. <laughs> um, yeah, so maybe uh, one last question before we begin to sort of like open up for uh, Q&A. Um, Maybe you can just tell us uh, if you have any tips for, you know, other aspiring sort of longevity biotech entrepreneurs, maybe, you know, especially people who might be in a similar situation to, to where you started, where they were in, you know, academia, didn't really know too much about uh, biotech entrepreneurship, 
but uh, ended up making that jump anyway. So I, I don't know, maybe there's, there's something that you can, um, some advice that you can give them. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they are people who are better to, to give advice than I am. I, I see in the list of uh, people that pop up here who are listening, one is Andrew Brack, who uh, made this recent transition. He may have some things to say. Um, the other person I see who popped up here that you might uh, ask a few questions. Oh, he's, he's uh, um, gone off here now. Anyway, people come and go. So, But that's... Um, that's uh, who I would say um, might have something to say. But um, it, the longevity space is an interesting space in the sense is it, it's really it's full of passion. And people, and, and you're an example of this, Nathan, it's, it's really driven by people passionate about the goals. And, and that's not often that you see, you know, it's not a staid biotech world where people are just looking at things in a dry way. This, 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 uh, to me, the, the distinction between the longevity space and the other biotech spaces is really the passion of the people involved. Great, yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> and and it's, it's great to see, you know, so many people getting involved in, in this space. And, yeah, the energy is, is really something different. And uh, I also noticed that there's just, like, a lot of great collaboration. Like, people are willing to help each other. And... Um, you know, I want to do as much as I can to facilitate, you know, that sort of helping and connecting people together. Um, so, okay. Um, before we open up to the Q&A, maybe um, is there anything that uh, we can do in the audience to help you, um, you know, uh, and your mission at Deciduous? Uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know if you guys are hiring or if you're raising money or, or whatever it is you're looking for, like uh, advisors or, or some, some sort of uh, information. Um, I, I'm just going to like open up the floor to you to, to make any requests if you have any. Um, thank you for that. But uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I take the role of scientific founder seriously, and those are the questions I leave uh, the management team to answer and do. But you know, if if you want to give us money, we're always happy to talk to you. Uh, so, <laughs> if there's a good, there's a good, you know. <laughs> Uh, we'll take good care of it and give you good returns. <laughs> okay. So if anybody needs a good steward for capital, definitely reach out to Anil or Robin at, uh, at uh, Deciduous Therapeutics. Okay, great. Um, so we're at the half hour mark now. Um, I'm going to open up for Q&A. So if anybody wants to come up to the stage, just raise your hand. Uh, we'll let you up. Um, just FYI, we are recording it. So if you come up, that means you consent to your voice being used in the recording. So um, I guess before people come up on the stage, uh, well, as they're coming up on the stage, uh, I'll just get the ball rolling on some of these questions. Um, so uh, one question I had was actually about um, whether, whether longevity companies, like longevity biotech companies, should be doing life mouse uh sorry mouse lifespan studies on their um with their like therapeutic therapeutic that they're developing right because you know uh they're quite expensive right to do these lifespan studies and then at the end of the day uh the clinical indication that you're going after is not you know life extension or, or aging because that's that's not not something that uh, the fda approves or or has um so 
what are your thoughts on this? Like, is it worth doing like a, a, a mouse lifespan study on your, on your, uh, on your medicine or, or therapeutic? Yeah, I mean, we, so we, we started to do that, uh, but I, you know, I agree with you that they, these are expensive and, and they take a long time. I just don't have the patience, um, you know, for, for all of this and, and to, to pay for the, you know, the cohorts as they dwindle is, is, uh, is, is expensive and time consuming. So um, I, I really think what the field needs is, is a true biomarkers, you know, um, not, I, I don't necessarily mean the clock is a start, the epigenetic clock, but, but really true biomarkers that, that relate to, to, um, to uh, aging. And, and one approach would be really to have a biomarker of senescence burden. And, and this would truly tra translate and, and help. You know, we, we could, you know, just like they're doing clinical trials on, on the, the, this, the COVID vaccine. I mean, when, the, when, you, when you're doing it in, in younger adolescent and pediatric populations, they're not really looking for efficacy. They're looking for a, a what they call a bridge. And so if we can convince the FDA, if we have a great biomarker and to use that as a bridge, um, plus, you know, to show benefit in age-related diseases at the same time would be, uh, would to me, would be a far, you know, strategy that, that we could use as a, as a whole, as, a, you know, as, as the longevity space could use. Yes, I definitely agree. I mean, I mean, others have obviously pointed this out as well, that, you know, one of the central problems is that we just don't have a biomarker for, for aging. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the epigenetic clock stuff is, is interesting. And uh, maybe there'll be some other, you know, composite markers or, or things that, um, that, that could be developed in the future. But uh, yeah, anybody in the audience, if you're listening at home and on podcasts, um, and if, if you have some sort of idea for developing biomarkers of aging, definitely... Definitely join the industry. We we need you. <laughs> okay, so, so you know, um, the, the problem we... with the epigenetic clock, as we're talking about it, is there's no correlation with age-related diseases per se, and that you know by by treating age-related diseases and improving them, does that alter the epigenetic clock? And and what it seems to be the problem there is that you can't have a biomarker that that is. Um, it, it needs to reflect something, and, and that's the problem with the epigenetic clock. I don't know what it reflects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think generally the, the FDA, if they want like a surrogate biomarker, there needs to be some sort of like a causal understanding, right. like at least some sort of understanding. <laughs> yeah, some, some mechanistic basis. I mean, the epigenetic clock seems to be have no mechanistic basis. Yeah, the, true. And I, I, I guess we could be provocative and say, oh, okay, well, maybe the, you know, Adrucanumab uh, <laughs> approval and, you know, that sort of spurious, <laughs> questionable, I guess, uh, relationship with uh, beta amyloid. Okay, I, I'm not going to get into that. That's uh, maybe too political for this. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Let's let's uh, let our first um, uh, audience member come up to the stage and ask a question. We have Erin. Erin, um, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, you can ask your question. Thanks for coming up. Hey, um, yeah, my name is Erin King. I just I've been involved in a bunch of different uh, aging research and projects over the years. Um, 
you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but I was wondering what's the biggest problem that your company is facing right now in terms of progress or moving forward, if there is any? Uh, we're not facing problems, but in the, in the midst of raising a Series A and you know, um, talking to investors, as most people will tell you, is always a roller coaster. So um, some days we're feeling great, and then then uh, then when we don't hear back from the investors, we we can't detect it. It's not very different from a, the dating scene when you were young, or when I was young. That's that's a good point. <laughs> right. Okay, thanks. Thanks for your question, Aaron. Okay, um, up on the stage we have Andrew Brack. Yes, welcome. Nice to see you here, Andrew. Um, uh, I guess you can introduce yourself, and uh, yeah, love to hear your question. Yes, yes, I'm here, Nathan. Good, good to see you again. Or good to hear from you again. And hey, Neil, how's it going? Hey, fine, thanks. Nice to see you. Nice uh, to or see hear you. from you. Here. Exactly. <laughs> um, so. I had a, a question really about the thought processes behind indications. Um, I guess, you know, there's lots of companies doing different ways of analytics and senescent cell targeting. But how do you view it from the human indication data? You know, you mentioned IPF because of the mouse model. Do you think that's an obvious sort of choice, a good choice rather than obvious? Um, or are you t because of the fibrosis? Um, is it there because of the CD1D expression? Um, and how do you think about a clinical trial for endpoints of senescence or, so, or intermediate primary endpoints for senescence? Yeah, so, you know, we, we spent a lot of time trying to decide what the criteria for what, what indications that we would think that's most, um, you know, reliable to, to pursue. And, and there were a few that I can, you know, um, list that, that really eliminate a lot of them and, and keep some at the very... Mm -hmm. Top of the list. One is is um, is the presence of senescent cells in accumulation in both animal models as well as in humans. So in the case of IPF that you that I that you mentioned, uh, not only uh, bleomycin is just a you know one mouse model which is for IPF, but it's it's clearly a model. The the emphasis is on model, uh, but in actual IPF patients. You know, in their lung, we see a lot of accumulation of senescent cells. So um, clearly, the translation from the model to the human is more likely because senescent cells do accumulate in the human tissue. So, so that is one criteria: is if we can see accumulation of senescent cells in the mouse models as well as in human tissue related to the disease. The same thing goes for adipose, for instance, in in patients from type two diabetes. Uh, not type 2, but having a metabolic syndrome in general, uh, the correlation between insulin resistance and, and uh, senescence accumulation is stronger than the BMI and, and insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. so not, 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 not all people with a large BMI have insulin resistance, but all people with senescence accumulation have insulin resistance. So, so those kinds of correlations uh, and, and data were important in the indication selection. Um, two is in, in, in models, in, in animal models, if we could then activate um, INKTs and remove senescent cells, and does it have benefit in the disease outcomes? 
and if we could show those things, then that would also help to to be you know in in top of the pile for the indications. And three would be: is there a diagnostic in the clinical, you know, in patients in, in people that that have a readout that you can reliably test a, a real diagnostic, not not something based on patient surveys. Um, and and so those are the criterias, and of course there's you know market payer behaviors and all that stuff, which I don't know very much about, so I shouldn't really talk too much about it. But putting all of those together, you can come up with a list of, you know, five or six top indications that this this would you know be the the, the lead where we could do, uh, you know, pursue in terms of indications. Um, one other you know side if note to to people would be. The, the reason diagnostics are extremely important was demonstrated by UNITY's phase two trial um, in osteoarthritis, and, and really there was no good diagnostic for it other than patient surveys, and, and, and the fact that even placebo had such a huge effect on, on you know, the patients feeling much better seemed to make the assessment of your drug really difficult. Yes, yeah, I think it's a, it's a lesson. Um, for all, um, all companies. Um, maybe a follow-on if I could. Um, so your data with diabetes, and then you just mentioned the really strong link with BMI. So why not go for a metabolic disease? Diabetes, uh, yeah, metabolic yeah. disease in general. So I, I should say, um, you know, um, this work on, on the human samples was done in, in collaboration with Sunil Kolivad, who you know quite well as well. Um, just, you know, should acknowledge that, uh, who is my uh, uh, great collaborator, um, is um, why not go for it? Is because it's outrageously expensive. It, <laughs> it's great to be put into a, you know, basket trial as, as to show efficacy in a way, but for a small company to take up a metabolic disease trial is is outrageously expensive. So in this case, we would look to partner. I mean, there's lots of companies that focus on type two diabetes, and that's all their raison d'être. You know, companies like uh, Nova Nordisk and, and Merck and Eli Lilly. I mean, so all of these who have you know lots of extra cash and no great direction could certainly help us partner with this. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Anil. Hey, thank you for your question, Andrew, and, and nice to see you. Um, okay, so next up on the stage, we have uh, Nikhil. Um, welcome to the stage, and uh, thank you for coming. Uh, what's your question? Hey, hi, Nathan. Hi, Anil. Uh, I lead in a, a very early stage startup called Helom, uh, which helps people track their health and also get preventative care. Uh, through the blood biomarkers, and it also helps them share certain anonymous markers with research entities who track how uh, various uh, therapeutics on disease progression is actually happening in them. My question is more broadly about uh, any therapeutics that is targeting the senescent cells. In general, you had talked about biomarkers. We talked about not having uh, proper simple biomarkers that uh, are able to track disease progression or even aging. Now, any of the aging clocks that are based on biomarkers have certain error. For example, the aging clocks that are based on blood biomarkers have typically have typically have some error of five to six years. Now, if you were to do certain clinical trial on humans uh, for a senolytic therapy 
or some senolytic therapy what is the average span that you would look at uh, the average span of the study because the clock itself would uh, because the aging clock itself is going to have certain error like 5 to 6 years if we're talking about blood biomarkers so would the span of the study be very very large like 10 to 15 years or should we uh, develop more biomarkers that have less error because we can't afford to have such long studies what's your take on this yes i i think the latter is is what i would you know i i i um i think we need better biomarkers before we embark on these studies um and and we talked about this earlier about uh, you know having you know it would be for for my perspective i would like to see a biomarker for senescence burden it's also all, almost a, a readout of the level of senescence that have accumulated throughout the body which accumulates gradually with age but accumulates rapidly in a particular tissue um, in diseases age related diseases so either way if we could figure out the burden and 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 a biomarker for that burden and if we can show therapeutically um that there is a decrease in that biomarker then that could then be translated into longevity studies great Uh, does that answer your question, Nico? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so I guess all I have a couple other questions too. Oh, mind. I had one, if you oh. don't mind. Okay, I'll I'll let Aaron uh, Aaron go first. Um, so you guys have done uh animal trials so far, but you haven't done human trials yet, right? You're gearing up for that. Yes. And then is okay. Is there um? I guess the question is. Why is this whole process happening in a company um rather than like at a university level? Yeah, you know, it's a good question because I, you know, I am at the university and and what I, you know, one of the main missions of the university is to is to train and teach students as well as postdoctoral fellows and others to to uh, for academic research and and the things that it takes to do this are not exactly great trainable material in the, in the sense that you know we we go through a lot of assays to test all the new you know compounds that we have generated and they're you know fairly repetitive and um so they're not exactly training material and so this is done better in in an in a startup setting as opposed to an academic setting because it doesn't provide the greatest training but we do produce people that could then join the company and and take on things i mean that's one reason but that to me it's a big reason but maybe andrew can chime in Yes, sure. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's not the most efficient to make a drug, um, but I think you know I hope for any of myself is one. Have those drugs? You can use those institutes and hospitals um, and colleagues that you have to facilitate trials. Okay, great. Aaron, does that answer your question? Um, kind of. Just well, like like shouldn't shouldn't it get at least to the human trial? Pr point before you transition into a company well you know drug discovery is not exactly a, a, an academic endeavor so it's it's uh, truly i i think the the reason and this has been a transition in the last 10 15 years is that 
academic institutions were trying to do things and they were not, you know, we were slowing down this whole process of trans translating it. And plus, it, it, it does involve a lot of money. NIH does not fund this kind of work. NIH will not fund and shouldn't fund drug discovery work. So it, it really, you know, if this truly has a a commercial benefit, then, then the, the, the burden should be borne by people who will, uh, you know, uh, benefit from the commercial aspects of it. And the institution, academic institutions, do benefit from it in terms of transferring the patents, but it's not, you know, something uh, should be done um, in-house, in my opinion. And two, uh, you know, it's like saying, well, shouldn't the the cafeteria be run by the university rather than contracted out to someone who's more efficient to, to deliver the food that tastes better. So, you know, it's the same argument in some sense. Okay. Okay. Thanks for your question, Aaron. Um, yeah, I, I actually had a question if I can, can step in here. Um, so uh, from, from what I gather, there's a lot of different... Uh, senescent cell phenotypes in, in a sense that uh, um, there's no one pan senescent marker that, that we know of right now. And oftentimes different senolytic companies will develop a therapy, but it works on like a certain subset of senescent cells. So I'm wondering what you, you're thinking about this. Like, um, is there a way to, I don't know, do you yes. think there is actually out there like a, a pan senescent, uh, yeah, senescent you know. cell? Whenever I whenever I get a chance to stand up on my soapbox and and deliver this, I, I try to do this because I, I I'm frustrated with with how people define senescence, and you're completely right. There is no pan senescence marker or unified marker that exists, but but we do know what a senescent cell characteristics are, and and what a lot of people have traditionally defined senescent cells is is by you know one marker like p16 upregulation, which is not sufficient to define a senescent cell because, uh, especially for someone who studied pancreatic beta cells or, or neurons, all of these post-mitotic cells have high uh, p16 levels. So you can't define a senescent cell based on one thing, but you know a few combination of things. But also, I think the most important attribute of a senescent cell is its secretory property. And that's what really distinguishes, you know, a senescent cell from a post-mitotic cell or a cell in transition to become a senescent cell. So that's one answer to your question. We really need to look at at the senescent cells that have a secretory property because those are the ones that are pathological. The other cells are not. Um, the second aspect is not all senescent cells, even with the secretory property, are the same. There's heterogeneity. And it depends a lot on the triggers. For example, the oncogene-induced senescence uh, has a completely different profile than a DNA-damage-induced senescent cell. So, so there are heterogeneities that we need to keep in mind. Right. That's a really good point. And um, so what do you think the, the solution is, like, um, in how it relates to, like, a, an immunotherapy? Is there a way to adapt... Um, the technology to get every single type or, or subtype of um, senescent cell, or, or, or what do you think is the, the best yeah, way forward? This, this is where the limitations you know, come into, and, and it's important to recognize the limitations. For example, INKT activation 
um, does not do much to removing the senescent stromal cells around the tumor because they are induced by oncogene-induced senescence, which is a different subtype. And the INKT cell seems to recognize uh, the DNA damage-induced senescence. So, so in more chronic diseases, uh, age-related diseases that arise, uh, um, that's, that's where the INKT... So it's good to know the limitations of what you're doing so that you don't choose an indication that's, you know, where it's not going to be... Um, uh, where it doesn't really play an endogenous role. So that's, that's, that's what I take away from it. Mm, okay, got it. And um, maybe a couple of questions more if you have the time. Um, uh, so um, one thing that I, I really wanted to get into was... This idea of, you know, academics uh, starting, you know, longevity biotech companies or even just biotech companies in general. Um, what do you think is like the biggest impediment stopping people or like stopping academics specifically from starting biotech companies? Um, nothing really. It's, it's, to me, it's more of a mindset um, and and. and... And you know, not every academic should start biotech companies, and and you know, uh, it's it's certain char characteristics of an academic who wants to do it, and 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 you know, a lot of academic research does not lend itself to translation either, or and it's not, and that's fine. So it, it depends on on you know, and the universities are making are making it increasingly easy for people to get involved. Uh, and uh, so it's it's always possible. I mean, there's always limitations to what the academic institution allows you to do because you also have a a job of training and teaching people and and running an academic lab. But you know, within the confines, it's fairly possible. But not everyone should do it. It depends on on your passion. You know, that's what I like about the longevity. You know aspect of it is the passion which uh, you know so the academic professor who wants to start also should have that passion okay awesome yeah definitely agree okay is uh we have one more person on the stage uh comment uh thank you for coming up uh, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, ask your question yes thank you um First of all, my apologies for the <clears throat> music around me. I hope it doesn't filter into the uh, call too much. That's courtesy of a, of a co-working space and I can't um, prevent it. Um, thank you very much, Anil, for, uh, for the talk as well. Um, I, I found it very refreshing uh, to be reassured and reassuring uh, to hear that long longevity biotech is, a, is not the dry, normal type of biotech, um, amongst other things you said. Um, my uh, background is um, uh, is um, uh, rather more uh, generalist uh, to the area in which your special interest in, uh, is in. So um, my apologies. Um, my question may therefore not be uh, not be particularly interesting. Um, I was curious whether um, immunotherapy in oncology, uh, which of course has blossomed um, over the last years or, or decades uh has any any lessons for immunotherapy within longevity uh, that, that you think there might be um conceptually i think i take all my inspirations from from the oncoimmunology experience in in you know the very concepts of 
immune evasion and and um, how a how the immune uh, response to a tumor is to me is very similar to how the immune uh, responses to the senescent cells and and while the details are quite different the conceptually the idea that I take from it is very similar so that's where a lot of my inspiration had come from in in pursuing this um, as to as to you know um, the question I had for you is how do you work with music in the background um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, something um, gives me uh, no inspiration, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but um, perhaps, um, perhaps I, um, I, I should clarify um, in case there, there is further uh, further answer to um, to my question that might be given. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering more as to whether you think that um, the way that this subfield of um, uh, of um, the biotech and pharmaceutical industry has developed um, as a as a sort of business history um, it is something that, that has any lessons, I suppose, for the future of, uh, of um, aging pharmaceuticals or aging biotech. Um, but of course, you have said earlier that um, uh, you're very much um, the, the scientist in in the business as opposed to the business. Yes, but but you know, on a cursory level, as a scientist, I would say. You know, it, this this is going to be written in in the in the business. You know, whatever those people do in business schools, uh, the case studies and all that, and the idea of how longevity um, and the money that's raised in the longevity field uh, will certainly be a case history on how certain uh, fields capitalize on. You know, there there are there are very initial people who really push the space. Uh, you know Jim Mellon uh, from Juvenescence and Laura Demings uh, and uh, there were, there are a lot of investor you know people I don't can't come off the top of my head but I'm sure other people Nathan would know a lot better than I would but but it it's it I I think this is a very unusual how it got together and and the only thing I can distinguish them is this this passion for for you know. Uh, addressing longevity, even though it's it's not yet obviously uh, commercially beneficial, uh, but how it has changed over the last you know uh, five six years into being a commercially beneficial beneficial space, and more money comes in. But but I'm really out of my depth, so I should leave it to Nathan to add to this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't consider myself a, a big expert either, but, uh, you know, still learning. But, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, the space is just really poised uh, for 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 a revolution, right? Because we have all these companies uh, developing different therapies, and, and they're starting to get into clinical trials, right? Even uh, Anil's company here, and, uh, you know, some companies that are already in, in trials. And uh, we really only need one sort of uh, proof of concept success in humans, to to really like just open up the entire field, right? Because yes, that that's going to change everything, right? Just just one, just one success, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, I I think um, it could come, you know, uh, within the next five years. That wouldn't surprise me, you know, if if that happened. Um, obviously, I can't guarantee any timelines. Um, but what what I can say is, uh, you know, I think it will happen eventually, right? Like I, I think it's inevitable. 
And the more people working on it um, that we can get working on this problem, the faster that we can get this, you know, sort of this sort of uh, revolution started. So um, maybe maybe that's a good place to to end here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, it, so, was, um, it was a pleasure, Nathan. So yes, yes. I, thank I, I, you. I'll let you do the wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. Um, so uh, once again, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Anil Bouchon for coming on the show. It's uh, been a really great conversation, super fun, learned a lot. And um, I'm, I'm really excited for, for what's going to, what, uh, what you're doing at uh, Deciduous Therapeutics. And um, just to reiterate, uh, if anybody um, is looking to invest or, or uh, you know, steward some capital, <laughs> let, let Deciduous Therapeutics steward some capital, definitely. Uh, reach out to Anil or uh, Robin uh, Mansukani, uh, the CEO at uh, Deciduous Therapeutics. Um, I guess, is there anything else we want to discuss here? I, I, I think that's it. Um, yeah, I just want to thank you again. It's been amazing, Anil. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Okay, great. And I'll, I'll hopefully run into you in person. Are you on the yeah. East Coast? Because you keep saying East Coast time. Yes, yes. I'm oh, actually based in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> But uh, I'm sure we'll we'll organize something through Cross the on deck yes. program, and uh, and uh, we'll definitely have a get together in real life, hopefully. Yes, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, okay, Bye. looking forward to it. Okay, take care, everyone, and uh, thanks again, Anil.